if you want to be uh, a successful piece of software in the world, you have to be somewhat critical. Ideally mission critical, but if you can't, you have to be revenue critical. And in that sense, if your very reason for existence hurts your client's ability to generate ROI, it's not going to work very well. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of PowPod, Proof of Work podcast, brought to you by NoRamp. Today, I have a great guest, Vivian Garnes, co-founder and co-CEO of Upfluence. Vivian, how are you doing today? Doing excellent. Thanks for having me, Ben. Happy to be on the show. Really excited to have you. Love your setup behind you. You're, you've got a perfect you. setup for a podcast recording. Um, I can prepare. Yeah, you certainly did. You certainly did. <laughs> Upfluence is an awesome platform, really cool story. I'd love for you to introduce yourself. And then right after that, please tell, tell the founding story of Upfluence. Yeah, that sounds great. So, uh, hello everyone. My name is Vivian. Um, I'm uh, based in Lyon in France at the moment. I am very much French because nobody's perfect. And uh, as, uh, as you said, Ben, I'm one of the co-founders here at Upfluence. Um, what we do at Upfluence, we're an influencer marketing software company. Essentially, we help brands, mostly e-commerce, folks who sell online in general. We help them connect with influencers and leverage these relationships to sell online to uh, by growth, essentially, right? So uh, the funding story, well, it's uh, it's an old story now because we incorporated in 2013. So it's officially our 10 year anniversary this year. And um, it was five of us at the beginning. So probably uh, we did probably most, if not all of the many things not to do when you start a company. Um, we started five co-founders, which is a lot. Uh, we ended up losing one, uh, sadly, a year in. Uh, we still have a very good relationship and we're still in, in close contact, but the entrepreneurial journey was was not for him at that point and um, we set out to start a business our initial vision which still is very true to these days was to connect brand with influencers and to help them grow the ideation process came from a previous business kevin and i had founded which was an e-commerce company and that's a bit of an embarrassing story here but we were selling neckties online which is had we done any sort of market research we would have realized that no one wears uh, those i didn't wear one at my own wedding so uh, i guess that that goes to show uh, but long story short, the only way we managed to sell our ties at the end of the day was uh, to ping bloggers, to send them the product, to basically beg them to write a review. And that review would generate traffic. The traffic would turn into customers and repeat customers and so on and so forth. So we had you know, the aha moment in a previous business and we thought, wouldn't it be nice to have a tech platform that does that for you, right? Because the, the whole process was very long, very time consuming, very opaque as well. Um, and so we thought, right, let's... Uh, let's tear things up and, and let's make something. So that's really the, the idea uh, around which we, we started the company. Everyone's founding story usually happens from an itch that they're scratching or some sort of problem that they face in a day-to-day -day running some other business. And I guess what I'd be really interesting in hearing about is how did you start scaling it? it, it you had to start from somewhere and everyone has these really cool growth hacks, how they how they get these companies to scale quicker and faster. What was, what was the biggest source of growth for you guys and how did you find it? Yeah, so fantastic question. And uh, truth be told, Upfluence is a bit atypical as a startup in the sense that we haven't raised much money relative to the size of the business that we currently are. We are well into eight figures in, in really recurring revenue. We're over 130 employees and we've raised to date about $5 million, right? So we've been very capital efficient. So 
I'm saying atypical because the norm sort of is to grow fast, raise big rounds and, and play the alphabet game, right? A series A, B, C, D, so on. Uh, we haven't done that. So we're in a situation where it was not possible for us to throw money at problems, right? Like uh, a lot of growth hacks sort of require. So at first, and sorry, one more element of context is that that hockey stick growth sort of that, that you see our flat uh, part of that uh, uh, growth um, curve was very long, right? It took us many years to fine tune the product and, and to double click on that even more. We first started as a marketplace a year in, we realized it was not the right model to win in that industry and we had to pivot. We essentially became an agency for a few years, right? We became a service business, which is very much a swear world uh, in, in the mouth of uh, many VCs and in the start startup world. But that's how we managed to keep the lights on, right? And, uh, and because service is to a degree lucrative, we're able to keep investing in the business, we're able to keep hiring developers, keep investing in our technology. So much so that at the very end of 2016, early 2017, we're confident enough to repackage that technology into a piece of SaaS product, right? So that's, uh, that's uh, a long introduction and that's how painful the whole process was. But as soon as we launched, late 2016, early 2017, we had a lot of traction uh, straight up, right? And we tried to be very methodical when it came to building our go-to-market engine, essentially, because we had to know how to stretch a dollar, essentially, right? We didn't have all that much capital to squander and to experiment with many things. Um, one thing that we managed to do very well and very efficiently is uh, paid search, you know, paid advertising on Google and, and, and such. Um, not necessarily trusting the, the first average position in the, in the ad because that tends to be expensive, especially in the position we're in where we're fighting against competitors with much bigger fundraises and, and a lot more cash to, to spend. But, you know, by being very uh, uh, shifty, very um, focused on optimizing year in, year out our, our campaigns, we managed to have a very strong ROI on this. Um, something else that we've done is we sort of ripped a page in the PLG playbook, in the product-led growth playbook, is that we released a Chrome plugin, which is very much the anti-chamber of our software. It's a free pro plugin that's uh, free to download and free to use by anyone, basically, and that can give you access to some influencer data that can be very useful. And we marketed this and um, very word of mouth, very you know, uh, efficient, lean kind of market. And very quickly, we had 100,000 users on that uh, plugin. That was a very good way to get the name out as well. In years after, to really diversify our marketing mix, uh, we had done, of course, the classics, you know, the content marketing, social media marketing, all that stuff. But one thing that really became big for us a few years after, so I think it, it took a little bit of maturity for us to make it work, uh, it's uh, outbound sales, right? So we have a team that finds folks that could be relevant, that pitch them what we do, invite them for a demo, and so on and so forth, right? But I guess if I zoom out, the, the entire thing was to, to try to figure out what our playbook was going to be, uh, what our go-to-market motion was going to be, and it was inside sales. So, you know, the demo process and the yearly contract, and, and that's what emerged, given the maturity of the market, that's what made sense for us. And uh, then we had to figure out, okay, how do we get eyeballs on our website? How do we make sure that these folks want to book a demo with us? How do we close these demos? How do we make them repeat customers? You know, it becomes the, the goal marketing funnel that you have to take care of, essentially. But, you know, as you grow as a business, you really want to diversify uh, the streams of revenue. And so uh, we wanted to graduate from inbound to outbound. And so we created a team that's now a team of uh, 22 or 25 folks who identify who we want to reach out to, what's our ICP, our ideal customer profile, to basically 
pitch them, bring them some value, you know, uh, try to uh, try to convey what is it that we do here at Affluence, invite them for a demo and so on and so forth. Amazing. All of these successful companies seem to have found some way to grow tech with something unique. And that is really interesting in your industry to go ahead and release a free product to kind of get your name out there, have people test out, you know, what you have to offer. And even some of the other platforms that I've used that that is atypical, that is unique, uh, which is really great. And and as I said, I've, I've used a lot of these platforms before. As you said, a lot of them are very expensive. Some of them are, you know, very robust in terms of product features and offerings. And what that leads me to believe is if there's a lot of VC dollars in there, if there's a lot of companies trying to build in this space, it must be an effective business and 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 kind of marketing strategy. And so what I would love for to hear from you is why would you say influencer marketing is so effective? Yeah. So before I answer your question, I'm going to double click on something you just said, which I think was exactly true, is that um, a lot of the companies in the space are very focused on the higher end of the spectrum. They work very well for the enterprise, right? And most of them, especially the companies who raised a lot of money, tend to go after the Fortune 500 and, and, and such, right? And that makes sense, right? This is uh, usually much bigger deals. Uh, this is usually much more predictable revenue. There's a higher net revenue retention. There's a lot of things to justify this. But what happens with all the rest of the market, right? And, and that's really where Upfluence has usually done very well. It's in the sort of middle range of the market, the bigger SMBs, the mid-market and, and things like that. But I do believe that the reason why we haven't seen a pure product-led growth uh, motion work in the industry was up to this point a matter of maturity, most of it, meaning because influencer marketing is so new, it was still quite rare to know folks who could use the software like this, who knew what they were doing enough to use the software basically autonomously. Uh, until, you know, that was true until very recently, right? Now it's becoming more mainstream every day. And so this is becoming less and less true. That being said, now a company that would try to launch a PLG product right now will be fighting with quote unquote incumbents like Upfluence and, and all the other folks. And that's, you know, a, a few years late to the party. So it's going to be a lot harder. But at the same time, these big companies who've raised a lot of VC dollars, they can't really disrupt, disrupt themselves, right? Because um, if they were to launch a second product that would be PLG, that would create a huge risk of cannibalization. So we're in this interesting space where, uh, you know, things can or can happen. But uh, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to see what the industry has to offer on that front. So now I'm closing the, the parenthesis. Apologies for that. To get to your question, why does influencer marketing work? I, I think this is a fantastic question. And if you zoom all the way out, I think the mechanics are really powerful. The psychology of it is really powerful, right? Um, if... Ben, you were to tell me that you're a great guy, you know, I might take your word for it, but it will not be as powerful as this someone else tells me you're a great guy, right? This, that's the, the power of recommendation here. Um, if you combine that with the scale of social media, I think there are now three social media platforms who have north of two and a half billion users, you know, active users. That is uh, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. There's TikTok catching up really fast at 1.5 billion. The scale is really unprecedented and that really complements the mechanic, the psychological mechanics of recommendation because social media platforms, the way they built today, it's essentially a dopamine generation machine, right? So it really creates that recurrence and so on and so forth. Um, the last thing I think makes it work so well is uh, at the end of the day, it's very much a permission-based thing, right? Meaning if I want to see uh, the updates of one influencer that I like, I have to follow him, right? So it is my permission to give to the influencer for him to 
provide me with this content, some of which might be sponsored, some of which might be a brand partnership. And that was really refreshing, I think, when it came out compared to all the rest, which is very intrusion-based, right? I am browsing a website, I see a pop-up ad that's uh, you know, disrupting my uh, navigation, my web browsing. If I walk in the street, I see a billboard, it's disrupting my view and so on and so forth, right? Uh, historically, advertising have been very uh, you know, intrusive as opposed to permission-based. And I think the combination of these three things makes influencer marketing really, really powerful. Word of mouth transcends most barriers or, or boundaries. It's just one of those things that works so well uh, you've got human psychology on your side. That's not something that will go away. Um, so yeah, you've got, you've got some really good, uh, tailwinds behind you. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you're hundred percent right. Yeah. Right place, right time. Oh yeah. That, yeah, exactly. And yeah, I was thinking about the social media platforms based on what you were saying. TikTok must've been a massive growth lever, growth lever for you guys. Can you touch on that? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, we, we were heading into a direction where the market was very concentrated around Instagram, right? Which on one hand is great. It simplifies a lot of things. On the other hand, that creates a lot of risks as a business owner, right? Because uh, you have sort of all your eggs in one basket. And so we were very attentive at the rise of YouTube, which has been doing very well as a platform in recent years. But TikTok has been really a meteoric rise, right? And um, for where I stand, it's fantastic, right? Because it really diversifies, it reshuffles the deck, it diversifies who owns what and when. And basically now you're in the market where you have to deal with major trillion dollar companies or soon to be trillion dollar companies, which is always better than to be at the mercy of one, right? So from a business standpoint, fantastic. From more of the like subject matter expertise standpoint, um, TikTok was really interesting because uh, for a number of reasons, I'm not necessarily going to touch on all of them, but it was different kind of content as well, right? Vertical filming, short videos, very entertainment focus. So there were also new codes that came with this, right? And so advertisers had to adapt and learn these codes if they wanted to leverage this properly. And the last thing that I'm going to say on that matter is that there's always a little bit of a game of cat and mouse when you're an advertiser, when you want to really make the most of your marketing budget, because the later you are to the party, the more advertisers is going to be offering low in demand. It's going to be more expensive for you to get eyeballs to whatever is it you have to offer, right? As opposed to what you get to the party, when you get to the party early, you are in a situation that's completely different. You know, you, you get to set the prices, you get to create the first relationships that are going to be very meaningful and very long term with these creators. And so a lot of brands have seen this as a new gold rush and they were 100% right to, and we definitely served that wave. Uh, as well when it came to our growth. Making sure you're aware of what's going on in the world that can affect you. And it seems interesting, other than you know competitors in your space, the threats don't seem that severe because the rise of, of these social media platforms and, and other growth lev levers that you can take advantage of, th these are all helpful things. You, you want other companies to succeed in certain spaces, of course, that help you and, and I guess this can really go for any company, right? But, but the, like, this is a great example. A rise of a massive social media platform benefits you greatly. Th that is correct. And 
I think our relationship and the creator relationship with the social media platforms is very symbiotic to a degree, right? Because the creators are great at what they do. They are going to create amazing content. This content is going to drive engagement. They're going to drive new user growth. So that's going to increase the ad inventory that this social media platform has to offer and as such are going to benefit massively from it. So us as a middle guy, basically we make sure that these folks are more successful. We make sure that they make more money from brands. We make sure that they can spend more time doing what they're doing best right and so that puts them in a situation where a lot of them can quit their day job and do this full-time so create more content and so on and so forth so it's really a virtuous cycle in that sense um, but I would not necessarily agree that there are no sort of business risks we're not at uh, you know it's not impossible that one of these social media platforms would decide that uh, that's it I'm putting I'm taking my social network private like uh, Elon Musk did with Twitter I was about to say Twitter but no x.com right um, and in that case how do creators get found? You know, they can only be found by the users of the platforms. And, and you know, that really limits the ability to extract data, that really limits the ability to provide quality analytics, that really limits the ability of third-party apps to interact with the content and so on. So, um, you know, there's always some risk. I think that's uh, one of the given things with any sort of business. It's, it's going to happen whether you like it or not. But at the end of the day, it's true that we're in a, in a great industry. Definitely a great industry, and yes, there will always be risks uh, with any business. Those mutually beneficial businesses or, or that can benefit from all people winning, those are my favorite businesses. Those are the ones that have a much greater chance at success, in my mind. You touched on some of the things that helped you scale uh, at, at Upfluence in terms of ad, just traditional ad marketing. You guys have a very interesting analytics platform side of, side of your platform, which I want to touch on a bit later. But because you are absolutely being aware of of the the analytics and analysis going on behind the scenes, I was curious if there's one distinct marketing channel that works extremely well, like hand in hand with influencer marketing. I'm going to give you two, if you if you allow me. Um, That's okay. <laughs> so a, a lot of the brands we work with, um, they've been around the block a few times, they have been in business for a few years, they have this huge base of clients that they do almost nothing with except sending them emails now and then, right? And what we found extremely powerful is to integrate with whatever source of truth, whatever system of record they have for these clients. So for a lot of our clients, it can be their Shopify, their Klaviyo, their WooCommerce, Magento, whatever CMS or marketing automation infrastructure that they use. And by integrating with them, we can cross-reference their database of clients with our database of influencers, right? And what happens is that we can discover their influential customers. And that's an incredibly potent um, concept because the, that basically benefits across the entire scope. Um, and let me double click on that. First, it saves a ton of time to the brand, right? Because now instead of having to reach out to net new influencers that may or may never have heard of a brand, right? They now reach from within, right? Folks who already know the brand. So they are going to have much better activation metrics, right? So these folks are more likely to work with you. They're more likely to be cheaper or at least not ask as much money if they were to work with you because they already love the brand, right? They're already committed, they're already involved. So that's really a strong selling argument. Most of the time, because they're already, already clients, they already use your products. So in some cases, you don't even have to send them net new products, right? They already have them. And because they are so authentic, so genuine, because they love the brand, they've loved this sometime for many years, their content tends to perform better as well, right? So if, you, if cynically you look at this 
um, through the lens of RI, it costs you less money, takes you less time, and the output, the outcome is greater, right? So you really maximize the RI equation by, by doing that. So influencer marketing plus CRM, absolute fantastic match. The other thing I'm gonna say is uh, uh, what platforms called whitelisting. So it's a combination with influencer marketing and traditional paid social media campaigns. So what advertisers do here is that they run a great influencer marketing campaign. They take their top performers, the top 20% of content that's really knocked it out of the park. And they are going to amplify this content to a new lookalike audience, right? So this has worked particularly well for this kind of demographics and so on, right? Let's put a few hundred dollars on each of these posts to really broaden the reach, right? And what we've seen is that you really can really give a second breath to this uh, content, social media content being quite ephemeral in their reach, you know, it tends to fold on quite quickly. That's the way to give it a second shelf life, right? And, and sometimes to really double, triple, quadruple um, the success of the campaign you've already had. What has worked for Gymshark or, or whatever will not necessarily work for you and vice versa, right? It's for you as a marketer, as a business owner, to really figure out what playbook works for your business because your unit economics are gonna be different, right? Maybe your gross margin rate is bigger or smaller than normal and as such, you can afford to spend more or less and, and as such, the scale of your campaign that you need to reach is different and so on and so forth. So really, you know, don't take something that works somewhere else and apply it to your business blindly. Try to really understand what the assumptions are, you know, what, what, what the hypothesis is, you know, try to, to be very scientific about this and and you know and confront this hypothesis to the reality and, and and make it work as a result you talked about what figure out what works for your business and one of the things i was really fascinated by when i was doing research for upfluence is you are not a two-sided marketplace this was very interesting to me why didn't you decide to build out a two-sided marketplace they're, they're obviously very difficult that's the obvious reason but why else so Ironically, as I was touching on in one of my first answers, we used to be a marketplace, funnily enough, right? So we, we started a two-sided marketplace and we, we, we pivoted a number of times, but we realized it was not what it takes to win in that industry specifically. I still believe it's a very strong model. There's a, a great many advantages, network effects being one of them that's extremely powerful. But for influencer marketing, it didn't really work. And there's a few reasons um, behind this. Number one is you need to have a marketplace that's really liquid, right? Because you have to match supply and demand. You cannot be uh, asymmetrical in that sense. And so that creates a situation where you have to grow both supply and demand sides proportionally and very well. That's extremely hard, number one. Number two, um, the most successful influencer marketing uh, marketplaces out there have a few tens of thousands or a few, maybe a hundred thousand authenticated influencers out there. What we came to realize is that this is nowhere near enough to really offer and guarantee and promise strong ROIs for your clients. What I mean by that is this, if your marketplace is somewhat agnostic, but you try to service every sort of vertical in the industry, then you are in a situation where it's only going to be a few thousand influencers in the beauty industry, a few thousand uh, fashion industry, consumer tech, consumer finance, whatever it is, right? And that's not enough for your clients to be very picky about them, right? And at the end of the day, what impacts most your client's ability to generate ROI is their purchasing, sort of the negotiation power, bargaining power, I, want, I meant to say. And um, if they don't have many tens of thousands of influencers to reach out to, they are not going to reach that bargaining power level, guaranteeing them to buy at the right price influencer content, essentially, and create relationships that matter. And so because of that, 
and the fact that a lot of marketplaces sort of part of their business model is taking a commission on transaction that happens between you know the, the demand and the supply uh, that didn't work for us either. Why? Because as I mentioned, we work with a lot of SMBs and these SMBs, 70% of our clients do not pay money to influencers. Instead, they will provide a different kind of incentive, a different kind of value proposition. They will send free products, they will invite the influencers to places, to great events and so on and so forth. They will do co-creation, they will do a number of things that do not necessarily involve a monetary retribution. And so the combination of these three made it clear that having a marketplace in the influencer marketing space was not the way to win. It was not the way to maximize ROI. And the way really I look at this is if you want to be uh, a successful piece of software in the world, you have to be somewhat critical, ideally mission critical, but if you can't you have to be revenue critical. And in that sense, if your very reason for existence hurts your client's ability to generate ROI, it's not going to work very well. That's destined for failure. If you're not revenue critical, that's, that's a really good point. You mentioned 70% do not actually pay you or an influencer. That's really interesting. I want to dive into that. What What is the main source of revenue for for, for Upfluence if, if they're not paying you directly? So, sorry, they do pay us. They do not necessarily pay the, the influencers. I wanted to, to clarify that. Um, the we, we have three tiers of revenue as of right now. Uh, give or take 80% is strict SaaS revenue, licenses, yearly contracts. We have about 10%, which is a commission we take on payouts that are being made on the platform. So in that sense, I'm, I'm uh, going back to my previous answer, which is a little bit like a marketplace model in that sense. And the third is a little bit of professional services. So for our clients who lack the time or lack the expertise to really make the most out of our platform, we basically... Uh, bill them by the hour and we have experts doing things for them, right? So that's our three tiers of revenue here. Got it. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, still very fascinating that you're not, that most clients aren't paying influencers, direct, influencers directly. That just proves how interesting a business you've built. Yeah, and, and interesting in industry, right? And uh, I, I could speak about this for hours, but it all boils down to what's your value proposition. As a brand, what's my value proposition to the influencer, right? Um, and that touches on many, many things. Uh, so let me give you a couple of examples. There's one way which would be, um, uh, Ben, I'm going to give you nothing and you're going to write something about my company. Um, chances are you're going to say no. If I reach out to 10,000 Bens, some of them might say yes because they have you no know, good affinity with a brand whatsoever. So my individual ROI on them is going to be, you know, infinity virtually, right? Because I pay nothing and I got something in return it's going to be extremely hard to scale, right? So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is, Ben, I'm going to give you $10,000 to write or to produce a piece of content on Instagram for, for my business. In that case, you're more likely to say yes, right? And so my chances to onboard many, many influencers are going to be much greater. However, my ROI is going to be much lower, right? Because I'm going to really struggle to make up for that upfront investment. And that comes with extra considerations, right? If my incentive is very low, it's going to be hard for me as a brand to have some degree of control over the content, right? If I don't pay you to produce something, you're not going to play the game of sending me prior for approval, then I'm going to send you notes, we're going to do a couple of iterations, and that's not gonna work for you, right? You, if you already uh, accepted my terms, you're, you're not going to play that game. 
the opposite is also true, right? If I pay you $10,000, I expect to have many iterations on the content and to have a high, le high level of control on what's being produced and so on and so forth. And so it's really where you place the cursor here. The one thing that we've seen work very well for brands is to try to leverage the value proposition that basically has a great perceived value in a lower monetary value. Let's say, Ben, I'm, uh, I'm all birds. I'm sending you a pair of shoes that's worth $100, right? A pair of sneakers. Uh, the production costs and the shipping costs are going to be, what, you know, $20, $30, $40, right? And the perceived value of this shoe is still going to be $100. Is it as good as $100 in your pocket or in your bank account? Most likely not. But it's still, you know, a, a, produ a product that's worth $100. And so that's how a lot of clients are doing, you know, this sort of kind of positive arbitrage. And they really try to, to stretch the marketing dollars as a result. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and for, for these customers to be able to use Upluence and, and retain that ROI, as you said, has to be mission critical or revenue critical. In terms of most people that are, are interacting with Upfluence, it's it probably from a revenue critical standpoint, if I had to guess. In our industry, what's mission critical is Shopify, right? Because the entire e-commerce website cannot run, it cannot be live, it cannot you know, get new business if it's not live. So they are mission critical. We would be revenue critical. There are a lot of clients who have double digits of their revenue that comes from affluence and from influencer marketing at large, right? And so that's really the, the latter that we've chosen and that we could exploit, truth be told, as opposed to the former. Absolutely. It's more of like the infrastructure to be able to use a platform like you guys is, is more mission critical. That, that does make a lot of sense. And in terms of these companies being able to retain that ROI after interacting with Upfluence, they have to be able to understand the actual numbers. What, you know, what, are the, what analysis can they gain from, from like the deep analysis on the ROI? I would argue it's very important for them to be able to see these numbers, uh, in, ideally in real time. Um, and I'd argue this is a very important part of your platform. I'd love for you to dive into the analytics side, how you decided what to show customers. Um, and yeah, what, what did you focus on initially? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. To answer this question chronologically, you know, when, when you start throwing your first product, your first MVP to the market and confront it to the market, you have little resources and you have to pick your battles, right? And so we decided to start at the beginning of the value proposition chain, which is the influencer discovery piece. So we're gonna help you, the brand, find influencers that you may want to work with, right? And there's no ROI to this. It's very hard to prove ROI, right? But we had to add more features until we had a very end-to-end -end product like we have today. But it only came later in the, in the life of a product to really have this analytics piece in which we could prove ROI. But now, essentially, we sort of prove the value of influencer marketing two different ways. There's number one, the social media performance, and number two, the sales performance. Social media performance is still a bit of vanity metric, very top of the funnel metrics, right? It's what was my reach? Well, how many impressions did I generate? How many likes did I get? How many comments did I get? What's my engagement rate? And things like that, right? Some brands have this sort of internal formula to say, if I've purchased these many eyeballs, then my ROI is X, right? They, they sort of calculate their own in media value and how much would have it cost to run this campaign on, Google, on uh, Facebook ads, for example. And so they sort of find their ROI on this. But for us, you know, as, as true uh, marketers, that, that, that didn't really work. So 
What we did is only after we were able to integrate with the CMSs of this world, the Shopify, Magento, you know, uh, BigCommerce and companies like such, WooCommerce as well, we were able to basically pull the sales data as we were bringing it in, right? So now we're able to say, this influencer has used this coupon code, he has brought in X number of sales for a total of Y dollars of GMV with an average order value of Z, right? And so we can say that at the campaign level, at the activation level or at the influencer level. And where it gets really fascinating for me is that it really shifts the way marketers used to work because back a few years, it was only on the campaign level. Oh, I have a Black Friday, Cyber Monday coming up. I'm going to make this campaign. And then we have Valentine's Day in February campaign. And then we have this campaign and this and that and that. But now it's becoming more of a, you know, evergreen effort of doing influencer marketing because they have their community of influencers to whom they send product, to whom they send coupon codes, these influencers bring in sales, and they have this visibility on the RI at the influencer level, and they're able to say, oh, all right, these 500 are, you know, regularly work with, these 10% at the bottom are not really all right positive, I'm going to stop working with them, I'm going to activate another 10%, right? And so that really is uh, something that gets optimized month in, month out, and that's really becoming basically an everyday thing and not a campaign thing with you know, a few high points through the year. When, when you hear from customers about their successes using Upfluence, do they highlight that analytics portion as being the most helpful? Yeah, um, 100%. So something we like to say internally, I don't know if you're a fan of cinema and uh, uh, Christopher Nolan movies, but the movie The Prestige with Hugh Jackman, um, in which basically he, he explains the anatomy of a magic trick, right? And he explains that the prestige is the part in which you really uh, sort of solve the magic trick and you get the applause and, and you get the, uh, the celebrity and so on and so forth. And we really, if you look at technology like magic, which is a little bit dubious as a parallel, but um, bear with me for a second. Only the analytics is the prestige of a magic trick, right? Only then can you actually showcase the value of what you do. And only then can you really prove that you're revenue critical to your clients and that if they invest X, they'll get two X out of it. But once you have sufficient, a sufficient number of clients doing that and you have sufficient data, not only can you say that pre-sales saying on average, our clients make this, you know, it, it becomes a super powerful sales argument. And better yet, on the products as data front, what you can do is start having a predictive look at this, right? Saying, we think that this influencer is going to be a very good fit because he's worked very well for others or influencers who have the same characteristics that have worked very well, right? And that's one of the things we're currently working on that we're very excited about is how predictive can influencer marketing become, right? Interesting. You actually led me right into my last question. You know, we've talked about the past, we've talked about the, the present, What's what's next for influencer marketing? You're, you talked about you could dive right into what you guys are looking at at, up, at Upfluence, but also what, what's next for like influencer marketing as an as an industry? Yeah, of course. So um, I would say three things, uh, not necessarily in order of importance, but one of them is definitely machine learning, artificial intelligence. I think that's going to be a big thing um, in many different respects. Um, Number one, it can really streamline a lot of things. Influencer marketing tends to be, you know, a long process. So you can look at this to uh, pre-write some emails, to pre-respond to some influencers, to write a brief much more efficiently, to maybe customize your brief at the influencer level, to have something that really speaks to him or her and so on and so forth. Um, you can have AI as a way to do generative content. 
you know, we could imagine a world in which the brand provides a data set of all the great content they have about the product, the influencer, his data set is basically his Instagram timeline, right? And a mix of both that creates some great looking content. So that means the level of effort from the influencer really drops, which will impact, you know, a fluidity, the number of collabs and so on and so forth. So very much looking forward to, to what this could mean. And um, that's number one. Number two, it's a bit tangent to what I just said, but it's automation at large. I think influencer marketing is still quite time consuming because you have to look for influencers to contact them, to negotiate with them, to create that relationship, that human component. And some of it cannot be uh, automated. I know it's not going to uh, be a sort of DSP, SSP uh, programmatic thing quite yet, but a lot of it can be automated in you know, the heavy lifting that can be done. And that's one thing that Upland certainly is working on. And last, and maybe it's more conceptual at this point, but it's something that I very strongly believe in, is that I think influencer marketing is becoming quite ubiquitous, meaning it's not being just a marketing thing, I think it's going to become a company-wide thing. And let me give you some examples. Let's assume that you are the gym uh, company Equinox, right? that next year you're going to hire 10,000 coaches. How about you could look at these CVs, you're going to receive tens of thousands of CVs, try to find their social media platform uh, presence and try to use that as a factor of hiring these folks. Because at the end of the day, what brings more value to your business, right? Um, That a coach can teach 5% better how to do a proper squat or that he has tens of thousands of followers himself and can be a really great relay of growth because he will um, document you know, his job, he will document some of his work with his clients and so on and so forth, right? And so basically, how do you get that pot- potential for word of mouth that we were talking about earlier? How do we really leverage it on an HR perspective, but also maybe from a customer support perspective? Let's say you're a support rep for an e-commerce company and you have a hundred tickets to get through with no real prioritization, how do you know that Kim Kardashian is actually, uh, or someone from her team is, uh, is uh, complaining that she hasn't received XYZ and this is unacceptable? And how do you diffuse that situation before it becomes a PR crisis? Better yet, how do you answer so that it becomes a PR opportunity, right? Think, oh, I didn't receive that, but in the end of the day, the customer support was so great that I'm giving them a shout out, right? These are two examples, there are hundreds of examples like these that you could find, but I think Upfluence's job in the future will be to be that sort of intermediary layer of data that really connects with all things creator initiatives, right? Um, and really becomes some sort of an OS, an operating system for all things creator economy related. Influencer marketing becoming a company-wide initiative and you being the data hub underneath it all. That's that's pretty cool. and. Really destined for success there, if you ask me. Thank you. I appreciate the kind words. Of course. Vivian, this has been a lot of fun. Really enjoy it. I think we covered a ton of ground and wish you and Upfluence the best of success. Thank you very much, Ben. It was a pleasure being here.